What's up? Welcome to Forte Catholic. This is your host, Taylor Schroll, here for another great day. Got another great show planned today. Uh, if you missed us last week, we talked a lot about the Super Bowl. We talked a lot about sports. And uh, I had too many notes that I didn't get to. So we're going to, uh, I promised everybody last week that I'd talk to everybody about what Pope Francis thinks about sports. Um, so I have a whole bunch of stuff that we're going to get into that today. It is also Valentine's Day today. Whoop! So we're going to be having a conversation about relationships, about dating, and about a, a couple people here in the studio, myself included, our best and worst Valentine's Day ever, because literally everyone in the world has an absolutely great one and an absolutely terrible one. So, And then also, the biggest news of today, we have the amazing Trent Horn from Catholic Answers coming on to talk about uh, his new book, Hard Sayings, um, about some of the hard things that for people to wrap their minds around in the scriptures. So that is the plan for the show today, and I'm very excited to be here with you, with a couple of people I have here in the studio. I'm recording um, live to tape from the Red Sea Radio Studios in College Station at St. Mary's Catholic Center, um, where uh, Texas, the, the Catholic Center for Texas A&M University. So um, we're going to go ahead and, and jump right in. So where we kind of left off last week, if you missed it, you can always check it out on the podcast. It's episode 19. So if you can go to ForteCatholic.com slash radio, it'll be the top one there. Um, because this is episode 20. Congratulations, you made it. Uh, we all we all did. I haven't been fired yet. I might make it episode 21. So um, as promised last week, I'm going to talk about what Pope Francis said about sport because uh, many of you might have seen that he came out actually with a com- like a 30-second commercial. Um, it didn't air during the Super Bowl, but it was like the day of the Super Bowl to talk about sports and what, what he kind of thought about it. And I was so excited. I'm like, oh, yeah, this is going to be awesome. I'm going to get the audio. I'm going to play it on the show, and it's going to change people's lives. And then I realized it was in Spanish, and I was very disappointed. So um, instead, of, instead of all that, I'm just going to have to read it to you. Um, the great people on the Internet translated it for me. So Pope Francis said on the day of the Super Bowl, great sporting events like today's Super Bowl are highly symbolic, showing that it is possible to build a culture of encounter and a, and a world of peace. By participating in sport, we are able to go beyond our own self-interest, and in a healthy way, we learn sacrifice, to grow in fidelity, and respect the rules. He continues, may this year's Super Bowl be a sign of peace, friendship, and solidarity to the world. So uh, last week, the, kind of the main crux of it was, okay, like what are the, you know, a big theme on this show is to test everything and retain what is good, right? So test everything about the Super Bowl. What in it is a good thing? What is the, and some of the great things are that it brings us together. We love watching greatness because it inspires us to um, live this call to greatness that, um, that God has called us to. Um, and then there's obviously some negative things, right, uh, around the Super Bowl. Um, and if you want to kind of get in more into that, again, check out next week because I don't want to bring this. I don't want to bring us down today. Um, but the main thing that that um, I want to focus on what Pope Francis said is says by participating in sport, we're able to go beyond our own self-interest. Um, so um, those who play team sports like like the Super Bowl, or even those who play individual sports like you know tennis, right, we're they're great because they're able to kind of put themselves aside and sacrifice for a greater, a greater cause, right? Especially in team sports. So if uh, Tom Brady, the quarterback who won the Super Bowl uh, last week, if he just decided, nah, I don't feel like working hard today, like it wouldn't be good for the rest of the team, right? Like if he decided like, nah, 
I've got enough Super Bowls. My teammates don't have as many as I do, but uh, I'm good, so I'm just not going to play well today. Like, that would not go well for, for him, for his team, or anybody else, right? Um, so by us playing sports, uh, all of us who grew up playing sports, maybe your kids who are playing sports now, um, are able to learn sacrifice on behalf of others, right? Which is obviously a great Christian virtue, right? Like we're all called to sacrifice. And obviously on today, which is Valentine's Day, in loving relationships, we're supposed to sacrifice for one another, right? Like true love is wanting the best for the other, even if that means that you are sacrificing something, right? Um, He also talks about growing in fidelity. I'm not really sure what that word means, so we're going to move on. Um, And also respecting the rules, right? If one of you want to... uh, teach me what fidelity is. I know what it means like in relationships, but I have no idea what Pope Francis is talking about. So I'm just going to blame it on the Spanish translation into English. Um, but if, if one of you wants to correct me in the comments on the podcast, please do so. I just love um, uh, being scathed on the internet. It's great. Um, the other thing he talks about is respecting the rules, right? Because a lot of people think, especially young people, um, is that rules are bad, right? Rules are restricting me from being who I'm actually supposed to be. Um, and there's this story that, that my boss always tells about um, children playing on a playground, right? If there are kids playing on a playground next to a cliff, if there's no fence, if there's no guide, there's no guide at all, they stay as far away from the edge as possible. With, with no fence, they're p- just playing on the playground, staying 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 feet away from the edge, right? But if there's a fence, if there's something kind of holding everybody in, the kids play all the way up to the edge. They'll even go up to the edge and look over the cliff, right? Because they feel protected, they feel safe, and that's within the rules, right? Within the boundaries. And so um, in, our, in our faith, there are a lot of rules, right? The Catholic rules, all the things that, that uh, Christ has called us to do, like you shall not murder. That, that's a rule, right? And that's, that's a pretty good rule. I, I'm, I'm down with that one, right? Um, there's, there's so many things that we are called to do, and then obviously vices that we're called not to do, right? And these rules aren't just God God being up in, in heaven and saying, like, playing the Sims and telling us what we have to do, right? Or it's not just a bunch of old, you know, graying people in the Vatican wanting to control our lives, right? They, they're putting these rules in because it's, what, it's what's good for us, right? Like, putting a fence next to a cliff while kids are playing, it's a very good idea, right? You want to keep the kids safe and you want them to still, able, uh, to still be able to have fun. And there's actually more freedom with those kids, when there are rules, when there are those boundaries, they feel more free to use the entire playground than if there's no fence, right? It's the same thing for us, that our freedom, we have our free will. We talked a couple episodes though uh, uh, ago that we all love free will, except everyone else's, right? Like we like our own free will, just not as much anybody else's. That's a Marcel Lejeune quote, um, so I don't want to steal that from him. Um, but all, all good uh, ministry, all good radio is stealing from somebody else. So um, the, the church has been around for about 2,000 years, so there's not many things we can do to stay creative, so we have to continue stealing from other great people. Um, that's, that's, uh, the more you know, we need to get that, we need to get that, uh, we need to get that symbol so, uh, so our uh, producer Jake can play that whenever I say something stupid like that. Um, but w- with, with, Within our faith, with God having these rules for us, it's obviously what's good for us, right? He, he knows better than we do. And whenever I'm talking to young people, I always, uh, one of the biggest images I use um, because Jesus was a carpenter was, okay, a carpenter knows what his hammer's for, right? A carpenter knows how to use a hammer. If he's a skilled, skilled craftsman, he can do great things with a hammer. The hammer 
doesn't really know what the hammer's for. The hammer doesn't have a brain. If you didn't catch that already, like like hammers don't have brains. Like I, I I've never had a hammer just like move by itself or or uh, argue with me, right? So, as silly as that may sound, that's like we're being uh, trying to be a hammer that talks and a hammer that thinks. Whenever we're telling God, like, oh no, I know it's best for me, <laughs> not the master craftsman, right? Because the master craftsman knows what a hammer's for. He he created it, he, and he knows how to use it very well for great things. It's the same with us. We have our creator. We have God who has created us, who has created rules, who has said, these are the things that you're supposed to do, right? Um, and then when we argue with them, we're like, no, you gave these rules, but I think they're dumb and I'm going to do my own thing. We're being a dumb hammer, right? <laughs> because God knows what's best for us and he has these rules set in place for us um, so that we can continue to live in, in loving community, right? If there wasn't a rule for not murdering, it wouldn't be a pleasant community, right? If there was, if there was not um, this commandment to to love God and to love your neighbor, um, honestly, all of us are selfish enough that we probably wouldn't do it if we didn't know what the guidance was, right? If we didn't know that we were supposed to love our neighbor and have this self-sacrificial love, um, we would be all about our own self-interest, as Pope Francis is talking about, right? Um, and then the other thing that the, the final line, he says, may this, may this year's Super Bowl be a sign of peace, friendship, and solidarity to the world. I heard a stat yesterday um, about how many people watched the Super Bowl. It was um, for the amount of people that, that tuned in to the Super Bowl in the United States was over half of the country. So, like, what other event has that many people doing the same thing at the same time in our country, right? Like, even... Election day, like I don't think that many people. I don't think half the population votes. I may be wrong, but I'm pretty darn sure I'm not. I'm not wrong, right? Um, there aren't. There isn't anything that brings people together that much, right? So uh, I know a lot of people. You know, a lot of Catholics don't like the Super Bowl. They don't like the bad. They focus on the bad things that come with it. And I'm like, okay, I, I, I get that. I get that it's 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 a bad day for a lot of people. But why not use this? event as a, as a way to bring us together, to talk about community, to talk about the good things in our culture and to talk about maybe the negative things. Right. Um, so as I was, I, I really enjoyed what he said about the Super Bowl, but then I heard, I, as I was kind of studying for last week's show, um, and looking for some content, I, I came across this thing that I was just blown away by the Vatican last year, last October had a faith and sports conference. In the Vatican. So the Vatican, Pope Francis obviously loves sports. He's, you know, he's, he's from uh, the, the South America. He loves soccer. He's a big, he's a big, big real big uh, football fan. And then obviously he cares a little bit about football too. So um, he loves sports. And he brought together this, this conference of Catholic leaders from around, around the world who are also involved in sport, right? And they're essentially doing the same thing that we've been doing on the last two weeks of the show is like, Test everything, retain what is good. What is good about sport? What are the things that that are, are that can help us grow in faith and grow in our our piety and our knowledge and and our respect for the rules and all these other um, and sacrificial love and all these things that that sports can help us with, right? Um, and he also gave the opening address at this conference. He said, "Sport is a human activity of great value, able to enrich people's lives." Uh, I, it's, uh, sports has obviously enriched my life. I, I told my story on, of being an athlete my whole life last week. Um, it's, it's honestly made me 
who I am as a person, right? Like I think I think sports and and prob like sports my and my faith and my family are probably the three biggest things like components into what makes Taylor Taylor. Um, so if you think I'm crazy, then maybe you shouldn't have a family or play sports or go to church because the, then you turn out like me. But um, it, <laughs> uh, there you go, the self-deprecating humor that that uh, everybody loves so much. He continues, let's just, let's just uh, stop having me talk and let's listen to Pope Francis some more. Um, as far as the Catholic Church is concerned, she is working in the world of sport to bring the joy of the gospel, the inclusive and unconditional love of God for all human beings, right? So he's talking, this is that whole um, scripture of uh, being in the world but not of the world, right? So obviously the church doesn't agree with all the bad things that sports brings or that the Super Bowl brings. But our job in any part of the culture, in any part of the world, our job is to bring the good news, the joy of the gospel to every aspect of the world, right? Um, so obviously Pope Francis used the stage of the Super Bowl to do just that. But also it's, it's, that's what we are called to be doing, whether it's at the Super Bowl or whether it's in our neighborhoods, right? A lot of Catholics, we're, we're, like, we're kind of insular, like we like hanging out with Catholic people and being uplifted by Catholic because we love that Catholic community, right? And that's a great thing. We all need that. I'm the biggest proponent that we need that, that community to continue to live out our faith in a strong way. But our mission as church is to go bring the good news to all nations, right? So to our neighbors that park in front of our house that we don't like, to um, the, the teachers and coaches of our kids that our kids don't like or maybe we don't like either, um, to our kids that drive us crazy. Like we're supposed to bring the good news, the joy of the gospel, this unconditional love for all human beings, just as the church is trying to bring to sport. And there's a, there's a great story of an American athlete um, along these lines. His name is Josie Altador. Um, he's a soccer player for like the United States men's team. Uh, he's also he's also played in Houston, my hometown, for a long time, and I, I his name actually is Josie. I thought it was Jose for a long time. People were just mispronouncing it. His first name is J O Z Y. It's Josie. So he demonstrated like this this inclusivity, this this love, and this like how you can use sport and your and the influence that it brings to change the culture, right? We've, we know of people like Jackie Robinson who broke the who broke the color barrier in baseball. Um, we were actually just talking about a, a, a movie and where and where the, the this uh, color barrier was broken in basketball, right? Um, so Josie Altidore uh, has played in America. He's on the U.S. team, but he went to go play for this team called AZ Alkmaar. I'm sure I pronounced that right in the Nether in the in the Netherlands. Um, and he was this was like recently, right? So he was subjected to continuous racist abu- abuse in, the, in a Dutch Cup victory. Um, he refused. Um, he refused the referee's offer to cancel the game. So, like, the referee came to him and was like, "You probably we should probably cancel the game because they're being so racist and bad to you right now, right?" And I think of the movie Forty Two, um, the Jackie Robinson movie. There's a lot of those things too, right? Where Jackie Robinson, what like people were just yelling at him and screaming at him, like saying terrible things about him, like he got death threats. And they like his his coach and the owner and the man kept coming to him saying like, "You don't have to go out there, like you might die." And he's like, "No, I'm I'm gonna continue to go out there, right?" And this is a very similar thing. We think like, okay, like Jackie Robinson, that happened so long ago, right? That was a, that seemed like a long time. Ago. This was recently, right, with Josie Altador. So the referee came and said, we, you know, I'll offer to cancel the game. But he played on and he, he bore the abuse with stoic courage 
Um, he played to win, as was his job, right? He still went. He wasn't going to allow this outside influence to affect his goal and his his the outcome that he wanted. Um, then, following the game, he spoke with grace and forgiveness, saying he hoped the abusive fans could quote become better as people, and that he would pray for them, right? So, like, I'm sitting here listening to this, and I'm like, that sounds really familiar. Oh, that's because that's what Jesus said on the cross, right? Like. So this man in sports and something that, that, that I love to watch and something that our kids are watching and something that the whole, a lot of times the whole world is watching when it comes to soccer or you know, millions of people when it comes to the Super Bowl, like he's using this stage. Like he didn't set out to do this, right? I, I, I'm almost positive he wasn't like, I'm going to make a stand. I'm going to make a – he's like, he's just doing what he's supposed to be doing, going out and play soccer. And he comes out, he says, I, I, I hope that they become better as people and he continues to pray for them. I'm just like, man, like, Josie Altidore is a better man than I am, right? Like, the, the ability to, to realize that this, that this thing, it's, it's so far beyond him. It's not about him. It's about the continuing to, to break down these social barriers, and he's able to do that because of his influence as, as, a, foot, as a football player, right? Um, his actions exemplify that it is not inconsistent to fight for victory on the field, then treat his opponents with the utmost integrity and respect after the clock runs out. So... That's why I love sports. That's kind of the end of that conversation. When we come back, we're going to uh, shift gears. We're going to be talking to Trent Horn about his new book, Hard Sayings, and about some of the things in Scripture where we can always kind of get confused. And, and uh, he, can, he can answer a lot of those questions for us. We'll be right back. Catholic with your host Taylor Stroll. As promised, we have a great guest for you here today, Mr. Trent Horn. Trent, how you doing today? I'm doing well. That's great. I'm glad to hear it. So, um, Trent um, is a, a giant in apologetics. He works for Catholic Answers. Um, so, from Trent, for my audience who may or may not have heard of you before, who are you, and why do you do what you do? Sure. Well, I am an apologist and speaker with Catholic Answers. This is an apostolate dedicated to explaining and defending the Catholic faith. I have a master's degree in theology from the Franciscan University of Steubenville, and I'm pursuing a second master's degree in philosophy at Holy Apostles College. I've authored uh, three books, with a fourth book coming out this spring. My most recent book is Hard Sayings, a Catholic approach to answering Bible difficulties. And what I do is I explain the faith and answer objections to it to help people overcome intellectual obstacles to knowing Christ and knowing his church. Yeah, that's great. It, all, all throughout college, I would use Catholic Answers all the time. I'd use stuff from you and, and Jimmy Aiken, uh, who we've had on the show before, and um, because I would often get challenged with some questions like, why are you Catholic when Catholics believe this about Mary or this about the Eucharist? And I'd be like, um, I'll, talk to, I'll take you out to lunch and talk to you next week. And then I'd go live on Catholic Answers for a week. And uh, you guys helped me out a lot. So, yeah, it's, I didn't know you went to Franciscan. I've actually, I actually went there for a year, and I've been working on my master's um, from here in the Texas area from Franciscan as well. I didn't realize we had that in common. Oh, very good. Yeah, so uh, let's get into this Hard Sayings book. So a lot of Catholics are often uh, kind of have this reputation that uh, – we don't read the, the scriptures as much as Protestants do, right? And a lot of times we can get tripped up in, um, with the scriptures or, or you know, read the scriptures and not know 
what to make of it, right? And I think that's the whole point of your book. So what are some of these hard sayings that you have found and explained away in your book? Yes. uh, In my book, Hard Sayings, I talk about three kinds of Bible difficulties. So I talk about uh, internal difficulties where the Bible appears to contradict itself, where one passage says one thing but seems to be contradicted by another passage. External difficulties where the Bible seems to contradict something established outside of Scripture, such as a fact of science or a fact of history. And moral difficulties where the Bible seems to endorse uh, immoral behavior or is not functioning properly as our moral guide. And I show in each instance how we need to take a look at the context of Scripture, uh, both its linguistic and historical context, uh, the rule of faith as a whole, and go through all of these different issues to show that the Bible is the Word of God and it is free from error and is able to guide us into truth and salvation. Uh, but there are difficulties, there are hard passages, but they don't refute the core tenets of our faith. Right. So let's let's kind of dive into a couple of examples of each of these three kinds. Right. So for the internal difficulties um, of people who may be looking at the scriptures as some kind of historical document and, and the scriptures aren't agreeing with themselves. So what is one of those examples and, and how how should we as as Catholic readers of the scriptures look at those situations? Where scripture doesn't agree with itself. Correct. And the internal difficulties. Yes, certainly. Uh, Well, I think one example, the most common one, might be when we read in the Gospels, for example, uh, events will be described in different ways. So we take, for example, the baptism of Jesus in one Gospel. Uh, The Father will be described as saying to Jesus, you are my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Another Gospel might say, this is my beloved Son. Or in any other stories, you'll see people might say different words or details may be changed, and some critics will say, aha, see, there's an error here. It's, it's described differently, and so something's been described uh, improperly. But that forgets that the, the ancient authors of Scripture, they were asserting true facts, uh, but the truth comes in their assertions, not necessarily in every detail that they use. In the ancient world, ancient historiography, or people who wrote history, were allowed to vary the details of events. The details weren't necessarily a literal part of the message that they were asserting. They accompanied that message. So each author asserts the same thing in the story of the baptism of Jesus, for example. God the Father was pleased with his son Jesus. One author uses words or details to express how that related to Jesus. You are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And another author uses details to communicate how that might have affected the crowd hearing this. This is my beloved son. So we see that in scripture, when events are described differently or with approximations or might be described out of order. These don't constitute errors because the authors were not asserting a kind of courtroom transcript of what happened. They were writing in a particular genre that allowed for the flexibility in details as long as the core truth was still asserted. And so it's important when we read these details, these objections, to see what is the genre of what we are reading that we may be saying there's an error when there, there actually is not one. Yeah, I got you. I've I've heard that that same kind of thing too. That people are trying to read the scriptures like a modern day book, like a you know a history book that we would use in in uh, in class when you're in high school or something like that. And their intention was different. So yeah, thanks thanks for sharing that. Um, so let's get into the external uh, difficulties. Some of the things where the scriptures seem to contradict something else that we know from this history that we were just talking about. How how can we as Catholics deal with those kind of issues? And what's an example of that? Well, I think one thing that's important is when people claim, well, the Bible contradicts history, 
uh, know that many times when people say this, they make the argument that because something is not corroborated outside of the Bible, the Bible contradicts history. But that assumes the Bible can't be a sole witness to history. Uh, it also assumes that ancient historians were infallible, and they certainly weren't. They were biased. They had mistakes. They missed events. So, for example, the uh, massacre of the innocents described in Matthew's gospel, the death of the children in Bethlehem after Mary and Jesus and Joseph fled, uh, that's not recorded in any other historical source. It doesn't mean it did not happen. Ancient historians in that time, like Josephus, really the only source we have for that time, missed many uh, important events. That event also corresponds perfectly with Herod's paranoid character that we do know from people like Josephus. Uh, so it's important to say that just because an event in the scripture is not corroborated doesn't mean it didn't happen, because we allow other ancient non-biblical works like Josephus to be the sole witness to an event. So why can't scripture? We also mustn't presume that those ancient witnesses are infallible, for scripture might be correctly describing something, and it's the ancient witnesses who got the who got the story wrong. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. I hadn't really thought about it like that before, um, that because kind of what I was thinking as you were talking was, you know, if a lot of people were using the scriptures, so if a historian was trying to tell a story, why would they tell it again whenever somebody else had been telling it for, you know, to, like in the scriptures over and over and over again? So that actually makes a lot of sense. And then also we ha we often have like this revisionist history where we, you know, we trust old scientists and we trust old historians. But as you said, a lot of times we don't give the same kind of trust to these people who were writing the scriptures, who were widely read and widely understood for thousands and thousands of years. So, Oh, absolutely. A great example of this would be in the first century, uh, the Roman emperor Claudius expelled all of the Jews from Rome. This had happened more than once, actually. It happened 30 years earlier. Uh, now, that event, the expulsion of the Jews from Rome, is not recorded in the Roman historian Tacitus or the Jewish historian Josephus. It's only recorded in the Roman historian Suetonius, and in the 18th chapter of the book of Acts, uh, that Paul goes and meets uh, Aquila and Priscilla, I believe, and he meets them in Acts 18, and there's a throwaway line talking about how the Jews have been expelled from Rome. Uh, so there is an example, as you said, that these were the authors of Scripture knew their world and cultural context. They give us great historical clues, even clues that other secular historians at the time uh, failed to capture in their own works. Yeah, that's great. A couple of other things that I know people often struggle with is a lot of these Old Testament stories, like like Noah and the flood or Moses and the plagues and the parting of the sea. Um, did you address any of that in hard sayings, or what would you say to people who are struggling with some of these Old Testament stories uh, like Noah or Moses? Yeah, I think what's important here is that when we, we read through these particular stories, to know, once again, the genre, what we're talking about, the Tower of Babel, creation, the story of Noah and the flood, those are all found in the first 11 chapters of Genesis that scholars recognize as belonging to the genre of epic poetry. So they are true, but they're not necessarily literal descriptions of past events. Uh, so a similar example might be when a parent tells a child that babies come from a seed that a daddy gives a mommy that grows in the mommy's stomach. That is true, as long as you don't take it literally. And that'd be the same with the, the ancient authors of Scripture are describing uh, these events about how God created the world and man, man rebelled, and God uh, is trying to reconcile man to himself through these different events. And that's what the author is asserting, and many of the details that correspond to it aren't necessarily literal in that regard. And so the author 
even we can see this certainly chose in his story to borrow from very popular pagan stories at the time, like other flood narratives. Why? Well, because he's trying to reach people where they're at, and yet he subverts the very narratives he borrows from. In the case of the flood, uh, the author borrowed from the Epic of Gilgamesh and Atrahasis, and yet in those stories, the gods are afraid of the flood, and they run from the flood waters, and they send the waters because humans are too noisy. Whereas in Genesis, God is not afraid of the flood. He's in total control, and he encourages humans to be fruitful and multiply. So we must take this into account when we read these stories to, to understand their, their literal and non-literal genres and their place in salvation history. Yeah, no, that thank you. That was really, really helpful, actually. And uh, it, the Moses story, actually, you know, it, it kind of falls under this external and also this moral difficulty, because I was actually teaching uh, salvation history to a, an RCIA class of young people who had never really heard any of these stories before. And I was telling them the story of both Noah and Moses. So I want to kind of stick on those two uh, when talking about moral difficulties in the scripture. Like how, because I know one of the big pushbacks a lot in the Noah story is like, why did God essentially destroy the earth, kill all of these people? Like why why would a good God do that? So how would we answer things like that? Well, we could say first that death was never a part of God's plan for human beings, that when humans rebelled uh, in the Garden of Eden, that death came into the world, mankind lost their special relationship to God, and were subject to death. And second, we can say that all life is a gift from God, that none of us has any, uh, the reason we live and breathe is because God has given this to us, and God does not owe us a set number of days. Because if you were to say, for example, how much life does God owe you? We'd have to say, well, he doesn't owe me anything. I did nothing that says God has to give me life. So the fact that I exist every day is a gift from him, and he can choose to end that as he so pleases. And the story of the flood and other cases in Scripture recall how God does that. And yet when God ends human life, humans don't go out of existence. They go to their ultimate glory, which is to be with him. So God is able to compensate us with infinite uh, uh, glory and with infinite uh, goodness to have with him for all eternity. So he doesn't wrong us by ending our mortal lives that he himself gave us. So uh, heaven is kind of like our severance package for whatever he takes us home, right? Um, Heaven is the ultimate fulfillment of the life we have led here on earth. And so if we live that life uh, in communion with God and his family, then whatever we suffer in this life will ultimately produce character and perseverance that will lead us into uh, the final eternal glory that we will have, that everything we've chosen in this life will prepare us for that that heavenly trajectory. Yeah, I'm going to, thank you, I'm going to share that with those RCA kids so they don't give me the blank look that they gave me last week whenever I told them that. Um, and then, like, the very, very, it's a very similar thing, so I, obviously you kind of already set this up, um, but with, with Moses and the um, in the Passover story where all the firstborn children are, are, are killed. And it's the, I guess the hard part in that is that it was actually Pharaoh's wrongdoing, not necessarily those kids. Um, so how would, is, I know it's a similar thing where God's in, in, in control of all life, but how, how do you deal with that difficulty of people being punished for other people's sins? Well, I would say that in that case, uh, the people, the, the children are not being punished for anything. Uh, God is choosing to 
uh, end uh, their lives because of a decision that someone else has made. But this is very common when God deals with people in salvation history, that the leaders of a particular group of people, they can act in a certain way that secures blessings. And we wouldn't, and it's interesting when people say, let's say the children of Israel who got to go to the promised land and were freed from slavery because Moses and other adults obeyed God, we wouldn't say, well, that's not fair because those children didn't do anything to earn the blessings of God. Their parents did. Uh, It's funny, people don't complain about that, but they did complain when children have to suffer because their parents disobeyed God. Uh, So it's people want uh, the rewards, uh, you know, from when others do things, but not necessarily the the uh, the harms that come from that. So it's the same thing. I would say that God has the right to to take human life, and many times He may do this, that He may afflict uh, disasters upon peoples or kingdoms because of the decisions of leaders. That if leaders can act in a certain way to bring uh, rewards and graces to people, they can also act in a way that can bring uh, condemnation and afflictions. It yeah. works both ways. No, that's great. I think, I, and I think honestly, people just like complaining, right? <laughs> like, like you said, they like complaining whenever th- things don't go well. But like in the in the case of, but the, if you get something you didn't earn, people don't complain about exactly. the fact that I got something I didn't <laughs> earn that was good. Only about something that's bad. Right. No. So that's a that's a great perspective shift from you on that. That's helpful. I'm sure for me, in my own life for sure, but also in the lives of the listeners. So, um, we have just about two minutes left here. What was your favorite? Part, maybe the favorite thing that you learned while preparing for this book, studying for this book, what was the biggest difficulty that was very helpful for you in your study um, in preparation? Well, I think the thing that I enjoyed the most in reading this book were comparing uh, the I, I graduated with a bachelor's degree in ancient in history with a specialization in ancient history. So I've always enjoyed reading ancient accounts. And so just seeing the context of uh, in the Old Testament and the New Testament and comparing it to uh, surrounding literary context, historical context, going into uh, you know the the, co- the corroborative sources in ancient Mesopotamian and ancient Judean sc- scholarship, it, it's really something I enjoy as a history buff and nerd. So some of that can be challenging as you're dealing with older chronologies and older details and ways of speaking. But to sift through it and find the truth of how God reveals Himself in history is truly uh, an exhilarating venture, and that's why I really enjoy doing that in the process of writing this book. What um, in working for Catholic Answers, I know you get tons and tons of questions. What do you think is the biggest, like, hard saying, the biggest tough saying that you get over and over again in the scriptures? Uh, it's probably a tie between uh, why did God command the Israelites to exterminate or wipe out certain other tribes, and the second one, probably a tie though, is people say, well, doesn't the Book of Genesis contradict? Uh, the theory of evolution. And both of those I cover in my book, and the question of God ordering the Israelites to kill the Canaanites, I actually spend two chapters on that question. Oh, wow. So, yeah. So, if uh, if you want the answers to those great questions, check out Trent's book. Trent, can, where can, we, where can uh, the listeners find that book so they can buy it and get some more information? I'd recommend they go to shop.catholic.com or a similar online retailer, uh, or they can ask for it at a local Catholic bookstore near them. That's great. And and if people want to follow you, are you on social media? That's right. I'm on Facebook, Trenthorn Catholic Apologist, and I'm also on Twitter. They can follow me there. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I hope people will go out and buy your book. Thank you for sharing your knowledge with us and for all that you do for the church. All right. No problem. God bless.
25. Final segment of Forte Catholic for today for this beautiful Valentine's Day. Um, so I just had the realization that a lot of you are probably driving either to or from your Valentine's date right now. And uh, if you're listening to me, we're going to be talking about some relationship stuff. We're going to be talking about some romanticism. We're going to be talking about a little bit of uh, the the best and worst of our uh, Valentine's Day experiences in in the in the lives of those who are in the studio right now. So um, we have our producer, Mr. Jake Blazik, in the studio. So both, what is your best and worst Valentine's Day in in your grand history? Okay, Taylor, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't remember hardly any of my Valentine's Day. I don't think you remember much of your yesterday. <laughs> That's <but> very true. <laughs> yesterday was a long day. So what? What is your favorite part about Valentine's Day? Um, that's a great question too. Um, I don't really have a favorite thing about. I haven't really celebrated too many Valentine's Days. You know? <laughs> womp womp. I know. So, I know. So yeah, I, uh, we were talking to Jake uh, off the air before this. He had a girlfriend all throughout high school, and he doesn't remember anything. So it must not have been that memorable. Well, um, you know, we talked a little bit about your second grade Valentine's Day. Yeah. So um, everybody remembers Valentine's Day in. Uh, in elementary school, you get to give the you know you're uh, you're obli- you're obliged to give gifts to other people. Um, so, uh, Jake, what was your experience like as a little second grade Jake Blazik hanging out in, in uh, Valentine's Day? So, like, I mean, obviously, whenever you have Valentine's Day at that young of an age, you um, everybody like hangs up a little bag and then they put in Valentines, and a lot of them have candies attached to them. Um, but also, like, doing the love language tests, my I scored a zero for receiving gifts, <laughs> and so I absolutely like I, that's just not some way that I receive love. And uh, looking back in in second grade, like I didn't really care about the the nice little note, like words of affirmation. I also scored a four because the other <laughs> option was receiving gifts, um, and so <laughs> we're, getting, we, getting we the take little, this to mean that that Jake. Just refuses all Christmas presents because yeah. it doesn't it doesn't do anything for him. That is so that is never gets a Christmas present or a birthday present. So this is the voice of I God. I wouldn't the wouldn't voice be of too. God, Thaddeus Romanski, the general manager here at the radio. I wouldn't be too upset if I didn't get any Christmas presents. So here. so wait, uh, you, you scored nothing on those two love languages. Do right. you have? Do you love? Do you receive love? How do? What is your love language? My love language is quality time. That's number one. Quality I just, time. I just like to be with people. This is quality time where I just sit here and make fun of you on the air with people listening all the time. <laughs> It's All great. It's great. All right, we got uh, we got Sam Shepard here from Blaze Ministries, also uh, a youth minister here at St. Joseph's. Sam, what was your best Valentine's Day in your entire life? Uh, I'd have to say my best Valentine's Day. I was in high school, and three of my friends, we all had dates. So we just, like, went to one of their houses and, like, hung out for the night. So we got, like, these heart-shaped pizzas, and Aww. I got to share it. And then we had these heart-shaped, like, cakes, and we had, like, a cake decorating contest to see, like, who could make the best cake from, the, like, each couple. And I think we just, like, watched a movie and hung out. It was really fun. How into it were the guys? Um, They loved it yeah? because we loved it. Okay. 
There it is. Right? If that doesn't explain relationships, <laughs> I don't know what I've done. Uh, that's the show today, everybody. That's it. No, that's not it. That's not it. Uh, yeah. Speaking of the ca- how old were you when this happened? Uh, like a senior in high school. A senior in high school. Yeah. Like, could anyone make a cake that was edible at that age? No. Um, <laughs> one of the moms made the cake. <laughs> oh, lovely. D- did you put that forth as your cake? Um... Yes. That, that's what I do. I just go to Kroger whenever I need to bring something. I'm like, I made this. <laughs> but really, my mom made it. <laughs> Next week, we'll be talking about lying. Um, <laughs> so, what was, Sam, what was your worst Valentine's Day ever? Oh, no. Um, I guess my worst Valentine's ever was I was alone. And so I watched my dog skip. It's a really sad movie about a dog with my dog. (laughs) (laughs) And I just sat in the dark and watched the movie. I think I had ice cream. It was typical sad Valentine's Day (laughs) struggle. It's fine. It's so funny because a lot of people's worst Valentine's Day, like you remember like the time you were alone, or in my case, the many, many, many times you were alone, right? But I never went as low as to have my date be my dog. (laughs) So that's that's pretty rough. He was really Uh, cute though so it's great oh yeah um so for for me um i uh i didn't have many valentine's dates growing up uh uh, that much either Uh, girls never liked me i tricked one into marrying me and now we're happy but uh i i I never was uh i never really made women happy um (laughs) so i I was alone a lot of valentine's day so my my best one actually it was actually kind of ironic because i was doing ministry in college leading this leading this ministry, and there was a ton of people who had no dates, right? We were all losers. And so we decided, like, we're all going to go out on a date, like, all together. So we had, like, 10 guys and, like, 13 girls, and we all went out to dinner. So, like, you know, like we go, and there's all these, like, you know, couples tables, and they have candles and stuff. There's just a 13 of us just, like, uproaring and laughing and having a grand old time. So that actually probably was my best Valentine's Day because kind of like Jake – I don't remember any of the ones with, with uh, my current uh, my my wife. I, I almost said current wife. That's bad. Um, I don't remember any of them with any of my girlfriends ever. Um, probably because they weren't that memorable until my wife. And I think like me and my wife are very like on big holidays. We refuse to go out on those days. Like Valentine's, I, I refuse to leave my house. I I do not like going out on dates when everybody else is out. Right. Other than the fact that it's really fun to watch who's on the date that year and then like they have a different person the next year. Um, that's the only part I like about it, but it, it, that that does not outweigh like my hatred for being like, out with like new lovey-dovey couples. Like it drives me it just drives me crazy. So um, I don't. I, I never like other than like all the ones that I was alone, right? Um, not with like even my dog didn't love me. <laughs> um, my like my most awkward one actually does have to do with my wife, right? So the last Valentine's Day that I had before I started dating my wife was actually with her best friend, right? It was just, so me and this girl, neither of us had a date, and we lived in the same dorm. And so I think it was like the day before Valentine's or actually Valentine's Day. I'm like, neither of us want to be the only two people in the dorms. Like, why don't we just go out and have dinner, go watch a movie, and then just be done, right? Like we didn't. We went, didn't have romantic feelings for each other. We just didn't want to be alone, right? So, so we did, and we had a, we had a nice. Well, I think we went to Subway. Very, very romantic on Valentine's Day because I had no money because I was in college. 
And uh, but she she was probably very upfront with you from the beginning. Said Taylor, I have no romantic feelings for you. That, I'm just doing this so you're not alone. She was probably very blunt with you. Literally every woman I've ever met in my entire life. That's how they introduce themselves to me. So <laughs> so uh, but so it was actually kind of funny because like that was my last Valentine's before before. Um, my date with the girl who's now my wife, right? And it was actually that date that kind of helped me meet my wife. So my wife and I met in a, a college class. And typic- typically for, for the two of us, I was in the back cutting up. She was in the front row. And I thought it's because she was studying, She just, but she just slept the whole time. She has confessed that later on. But um, she's definitely uh, pays a little bit more attention. And I'm like, you know from listening to the show, I like to make a little bit of trouble and have a little bit of fun. So I was in the back sitting actually next to the girl that I used to date. So this was all awkward. And then like my wife and I started dating. She moved back. So then I had my, my past girlfriend next to me and my current girlfriend in front of me. It was just loads and loads of fun. But actually, like the thing that transitioned us into like, we had never met. My wife is the exact opposite of me. She is so quiet, um, doesn't like to go meet new people, all these kind of things, right? And she actually went to a mass where she saw me singing. She's like, I want to talk to that person, but she didn't have my number. So she actually got my number from the girl from the previous Valentine's Day. So it was actually that Valentine's Day that got me a wife. So congratulations to me. That's one of the most successful Valentine's Days I think I've ever heard of. Oh, absolutely. It, it's one of those things. It was like the crucifixion. looked like a complete failure at the time, but it was actually the greatest victory ever, right? Okay, well, let's not, <laughs> let's not be started giving ourselves too much credit here, Taylor. No, no that, was, that was the most Jesus-like moment I've ever had in my entire Next life. Next week, we'll be talking about the sin of pride. <laughs> We're not lying and pride. And <laughs> Next week's just going to be uh, everybody telling me what I'm bad at. Um, Thaddeus, Thaddeus uh, Romanski is here, the general manager. He, uh, I'm the old man here in the studio this morning. He is. He's like 30. Um, which makes him the old man. He, he says uh, he's giving me the thumbs up or go up. I can't older really than that. He's he's thirty one. Okay, yeah. so uh, so Thaddeus uh, here is an old man that can't remember his Valentine's days. Uh, I've given you like seventeen minutes to think of anything. Have you thought of? Can you remember any of your Valentine's Day, old man? Do I need to speak louder? Can you hear me? <laughs> <laughs> I think I can come up with one old memory. Pull it from the back of my head. He's back like of my mind. He's like Dumbledore. He's pulling his <clears throat> memories out of his head and putting them out for all of us to see. <laughs> so yeah, I did. I was actually able to. Um, I'll come forth with my best Valentine's memory, which, like you, has to pertains to to my wife, and uh, we had been dating for close to a year at at that point. And um, she was going to be leaving on a business trip. She was going to be gone out of town on Valentine's Day. So I took, we went out to dinner. I took her out to dinner on a couple days before Valentine's. And that's when I proposed to her to be married. For us to be married, and and she said yes. Oh, yeah, she that, said yes. That was my next question. How many times you have to ask after that? <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's certainly the most um, most lovely, most successful, best Valentine's that, that I've ever had. Aww, so, that's so sweet for a man who said he didn't have anything. That's absolutely fantastic. And then I think you know, I, I I don't know if there's been any studies about this, but my just my life experience would tell me that. Most people are more often than not alone on Valentine's Day until they 
until they get married. I mean, I think when you're a young single person, I think if you added up all your Valentine's days, you'd probably have most of them where you're alone. So, you know, don't worry about it too much. It's, it's, it's typical. Yeah. And that's actually kind of what I'm going to get into talk to next to kind of wrap this show up and talking about relationships. Cause I think a lot of people desire relationships, especially on Valentine's day. You don't want to feel we're built alone. To, we're built to desire a relationship, right? Right. Exactly. So, and a lot of, like, I know that when I was, before I got married, like, I wanted to date. I liked girls, I, I, and I wanted to like one girl, right? Like, I was looking for that. Yeah. So I was looking for certain things in a girl, and I, um, it wasn't that I was very picky because um, if a girl said she liked me, I was most likely going to say yes, But uh, which is um, what I did when I got married. But <laughs> that's, that's a joke for those of you that can't read the sarcasm in my voice. Um, so, <laughs> so I want to talk a little bit about relationships and and most importantly how we can prepare ourselves for relationships and I want to kind of start it off by telling a story about how like my discernment for whether I should should have been a a priest or a married person right my entire life I wanted to be married I was like actually completely closed off to being a priest I was like nope I like girls so I'm not going to be a priest Um, I thought it was a requirement that um, that priests hate women but uh, that's that's it ended up not being the case, right? Or at least not having joking this aside, like not having this desire for for a woman, right? So I um, was so focused on dating, and I, you know, I kept. I was in. It was in college. It was my freshman year. I wanted to. I wanted to want to be open to the priesthood because I knew that. I was supposed to be totally open to God's will, and people kept telling me, like, you're closing doors and all these things, right? So for one year, almost to the date, I was praying with it, like, God opened me up to this, like, I'm not open to being a priest, and I want to be, I want I want your will, right? And for and I started meeting with priests, and, like, the first three months was just absolutely terrible. Like, it felt like they were just recruiters. Like, they didn't feel like real people. They fe- I felt like they were just trying to, like, check off a box that they met with somebody or that they recruited somebody, right? It was actually more of a turnoff. So I actually got further away from wanting to be a priest in those first few months. And then I found this, this group of priests, the Brothers of the Beloved Disciple in San Antonio, and all they wanted to do was help me discern. And I was like, man, that's awesome. And the biggest, so I, essentially what I would do is I'd go meet with them once a month. I'd go have dinner with them. They were fun. They were like... Normal people, just super holy and great priests, right? But like when we were eating, we're just talking about regular stuff. And I would meet with them once a month to eat, to pray, and and then they'd talk to me about my discernment. And the biggest thing that they were they were the biggest thing that they taught me that I want to share with those who are listening, maybe like don't have a Valentine's date or 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 are just struggling with with loneliness or wanting to date, is the biggest thing that they told me what to prepare for. Was what are the qualities of a what are the, what are the qualities of a good priest? They're holy, they're a leader. Uh, a lot of them are like great communicators. Not all, not all, but a lot of them are good communicators. They love people, right? Um, um, and then and then they said, okay, what are the what are the characteristics of a good father? A good husband and a father. They're loving. They're a leader. They're at least decent communicators, right? To be able to communicate to your kids, communicate to your wives. They're holy. They're striving for holiness. And they were like, essentially. <laughs> All you're preparing for is to be a man. So, like, what is a Christian man? What are the qualities and the virtues of a Christian man? And to prepare for those, right? It would be the same same for women. What are the qualities of a good woman, a good holy woman? And how can you prepare for that? 
And like preparing for that today, preparing for that right now will help you to be the best nun you'll be, the best sister you'll be, the best mom, the best, the best um, single person, like whatever it is, whatever God's calling you to do. Because I think a lot of people get stressed out about making the decision, about the, um, the, about the discernment process. And a lot of times it's so stressful or we don't know what God wants, so we just kind of sit on our hands. And the biggest thing that we need to do is to work on these qualities. So to kind of to end the show, I want to get from you guys here in, in, the, uh, in the studio with me. What is, like, Jake, what is the biggest thing that you look for in a girl that you're interested in? Um, I want them to love Jesus more than they love me. Okay, that's the obligatory Catholic answer. What's the second one? Um, what did I say earlier? I don't even remember. I don't know. Um, oh, I want them to be able uh, to talk more so that I can listen to them because I don't, I'm not a conversationalist as much. So you like, you like to listen. So you like a girl that talks. So Sam, yes. what do you look for in a man here on this Valentine's Day? <laughs> so I, I have to say the answer, passionately Catholic. Okay. So someone who loves Jesus a lot. Um, and I guess the second thing would be someone who will listen to me because I will talk. <laughs> <laughs> so the exact opposite. The exact opposite. So Thaddeus, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a chance to just love on your wife right now. What is your favorite quality in your wife? Gosh, I mean, where to begin? The beginning. Well, I mean, the night I met her, uh, I spun around on a on a bar stool and and saw her and was just blown away by her beauty. So that's what started the whole thing. I love an honest man. But looks, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and then the second thing, the second thing I discovered was that she was Catholic and. Uh, that's that was always a the the most important requirement for me um but she's such a good model of holiness she is always striving to grow closer to the blessed mother grow closer to our lord and she she bears it out with such patience with me and such tenderness with me and such self-sacrifice. She sounds awesome. And a lot of, She is. Yeah. My, my wife, like, a lot of the same things. Like, she is, de- like, completely dedicated to her prayer, just a passionately Catholic. She's a great mother. Um, and, uh, like, I, like she loves me, which is a very, very hard thing to do. Yes. So that's one of my favorite qualities in her. So uh, thank you guys for being here. Thank you guys for listening. This has been another fun episode of Forte Catholic. Um, I hope that you are having a blessed Valentine's Day. And we will see you guys. St. Valentine. Yeah, St. Pray for us. Pray for us. All right. See you.